Well, let's turn to Jonah chapter 3. Sorry, Jonah chapter 1. And we're going to read the first three verses. If you're, uh, don't be insulted if, if I say to you, you might be better to go to the end of the Old Testament and work your way back. It's easier to find that way. That's what I was doing during the first hymn. I found Jonah had moved three times, but then there he was. Um, Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read the first three verses this evening. It's great to start a new series, isn't it? I love this. And uh, we look forward to hearing God's word presently. Well, let's read it together. Jonah 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of God, and we thank him for it. We're going to sing just in a moment, but I'm going to pray for Jonathan as he comes shortly to bring God's word to us. Let's do that now. Father, we have just read your precious word together, and we thank you that Paul told Timothy to give his time to the public reading of the word, and he told them, as Jonathan reminded us a few Sundays ago, to preach your word in season and out of season. And we thank you for the gifts you've given our brother Jonathan, and as he has prepared himself before you, would you bless him, and would you give to all of us now a determination that we will team up with him tonight, wanting to hear the voice of the living God speak into our lives this November evening, 2023. Grant that your word will come with freshness and clarity, with relevance and power and joy. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, good evening. It is wonderful to see you. I know you could be out waving sparklers about. I had a couple of people ask me if they could bring their dogs. Um, do you want me to go with this one? Is that all right? Uh, wait, let me get a bit closer. Is that, that's better. Um, so it's a joy to have you with us this evening. I'm going to try what Ali did because it was cool and operate this PowerPoint off my phone. Look at that. Fabulous. Okay. Craig, thank you for leading us so wonderfully. Thank you for reading for us. So I want to think for a moment about first impressions. I think it's a good thing for us to do as we come to a book that the main images of have been implanted in our minds if you've grown up in the church from probably your youngest of days. Ten and a half years ago, I got on a train from Stirling to Edinburgh. I was going to meet somebody for the first time. Um, and I did that. It was somebody I wanted to impress. So I dolled myself up as much as I can doll myself up, I guess. And I jumped on the train on a lovely June summer's afternoon and headed through to Edinburgh. To which I received a text from the person that said... I'm running half an hour late, so jump off at Pullman and I'll meet you there. And I thought, okay, this is a, an interesting first impression. So I did. So I got off on the platform, didn't help my nerves, but I did so. And I took a seat on this lovely summer's day on Pullman platform. And several minutes later, over the bridge walks the most beautiful girl I have ever seen by the name of Victoria Wright. We'd spoken lots before this. We'd never met. I'd been away and I was back, and thankfully her chat and her ravishing good looks made more of a, an impression than her lateness, <laughs> which still doesn't get much better, but 
I love her dearly. Um, first impressions are really, really important. And they say it's 27 seconds is the time frame it takes for you to make a first impression, which is interesting because it takes about 30 seconds to read these first three verses. So I wonder if for a moment, if we can strip back everything we know about Jonah, if we can strip back all those childhood stories of this massive fish and all those thoughts of how did that actually work and how far was it and all those things, we put those to one side as we come to these first three verses. What are our first impressions of this man? And I'll tell you, my first impression as I read these first three verses is how on earth is this guy a prophet? That's my first question. It's the first thing I come to when I read these first three verses on my own. Because you think of great prophets who have been great prophets that do great things. And it seems a bit of a strange opening three verses for us. We're not long here. Uh, if I'll come to that bit, it, it, it sticks with me and it, it makes me ask that question, how is this man a prophet? Because what I see here is somebody that looks a bit proud, that looks like he thinks he's bigger and better than God and a bit disobedient and unfaithful. So we're going to start by taking the big picture for, for a moment. Who is Jonah? How are God's people getting on? Where are we in the history of Israel? And where are we in the, the big, big picture of the Bible. So what do we know about this guy, this prophet that we meet here called Jonah? We're not far after the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and this prophet comes onto the scene in the northern kingdom of Israel during the rule of Jeroboam II. We find all this in 2 Kings 14, and this prophet's name is Jonah, the son of Amittai from Gath-Hefer near Nazareth. That's what we read in, in 2 Kings 14. So there's already a mention of Jonah outside of us getting to this book. And of course, eh, Jonah means dove, which in itself is one of the, the, the animals with the most imagery given to us in Scripture. There are so many great pictures from Noah to the spirit at the baptism of the Lord Jesus, and we'll unpack that image in times to come. But Jonah means dove, and his dad, Amittai, meaning faithful. We have the dove, which often symbolizes for us peace, being the son of the, the faithful. And I, I think his father's name is a good indication for us as to his status before God, that his father was a godly man. And through that then, we come to this point of Jonah has grown up in this place called Gath. Hefer. He will have grown with knowledge of the scriptures. He will have developed a love for God and a heart for ministry. He preached now where he grew up. I think that's key to this. People enjoyed his preaching. He had a gift and he was established with a good reputation in the ministry. How do we know that? Well, 2 Kings 14.25 says... He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So, what we have of Jonah before this book is he comes with this prophecy that the kingdom is being extended under the rule of King 
Jeroboam. If I was a prophet, I think that's the sort of message I would want to take to the people. Prosperity, that, that, that's what this message is. Jonah's first message to the people of God is prosperity. It is, land is growing. And I imagine through that, Jonah became quite a popular figure in his hometown. Who wouldn't be? If he was to declare such wonderful things as that, he brought great news to the people from God. And it's safe to say that Jonah's prophecies would have been far more popular than his contemporary in Amos, who is coming to bring judgment prophecies upon the people. Godly people then wanted to hear the word, as in these days people do too. And so Jonah would have been in demand. Here was a man to bring great prophecy. The people would have wanted to hear more from him. If he was in our times, he would be a man of selling great books. He would have a very large following because he was living a good life, doing a good work in a good place. And he was living the dream. He was living as a prophet in the land that he grew up where he served now. He was serving the Lord. He was being obedient and things were good. Until God disrupted his life. Israel's history. During Jonah's years as a prophet, this was a time of relative peace for Israel. They stood tall among the nations, but that was more in a political sense than a spiritual sense. Things were relatively peaceful. Things were stable. But sadly, this was not a high point in Israel's history because their political stableness and their comfort did not lead to a growing godliness. You would hope that the more peace the people knew, the more the godliness amongst them would flourish. But the king that they served under, Jeroboam II, was an evil king before the Lord. Yes, he saw the borders expand greatly to the greatest extent since Solomon. But actually, that increasing prosperity led them to a materialistic outlook. It led the people of Israel not closer to God, but closer to their comfort, and it thrived on injustice of the poor and oppression. And that's the key message that Amos brings to us, Amos 2.4. They have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their father, fathers walked. So we have this picture then of Jonah who's living a good life in a good place, in a land that's fine, a land that's comfortable, but the people still really are not striving after the Lord as they should. And I think there's just a, a picture there for us in Israel that often we say to ourselves, when things get better and things get easier, my faith will get easier. Don't we? We often think, once this next hurdle is out the way, once I've bypassed this thing that's next, once I'm through this struggle or this conflict, God and I will get back on track. But the apathy and the self-centeredness of Israel points us to a different picture. And so do does First Peter. Because of that notion, First Peter puts all of that to death. It is the perfect example of thriving faith despite really difficult circumstances. Oh, this is now the one. There we go. Where are we then in the big, big picture God called Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. That was the first call. This commission given to them was hindered by the fall. 
And it was then in grace given again to Noah and then to Abraham and then the patriarchs. But Abraham was not called to only be fruitful. He was also called to become a great nation and to be a blessing. So that Genesis 12, in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham and his children were to be channels of divine blessing to the whole world. So built into the New Testament from uh, the Old Testament from very, very early on is God's desire that his people would reach out to the ends of the earth with his goodness and saving mercy. Israel isn't called out and chosen by God solely for their own sake, but so that they might bring blessing to the nations. But part of the tragedy of the persistent uh, faithlessness and the idolatry over many generations became their ethnocentrism. Who they were was most important. They turned. They turned their focus inward rather than outward. So as the focus should have been in places like Nineveh of let us be that blessing out the way, it just didn't happen. And Jesus addresses that too. He addresses the failure to bring God's blessings to the, neighbor, uh, to the, to the nations. So that's our landscape. 750, 770 years before the Lord Jesus, we have this stable, comfortable, but not very God-focused time. So we come then to Jonah and his calling amongst us. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God says, go. He's in his hometown. He's good with the first prophecy that he'd given because it was a great prophecy. It was good news to the people. They loved him for it. Didn't involve much movement. Didn't involve any geographical change. Didn't involve any inconvenience. And in the words of Dorothy Gale of the Wizard and Oz, there's no place like home. And that is totally true here for Jonah. And put yourself in his shoes for a moment. And imagine what this interruption of God is like. You are enjoying successful ministry with God's people. You're well known, you're well appreciated for this celebrated prophecy about restoring the borders of Israel. You feel settled, you're fulfilled, you're content, but now the word of God disturbs your comfort. I find that quite easy to put myself into those shoes, into that thought of, that feels like a lot of disruption right there. Put myself into that situation here. We love it here. We love Hamilton. We've been here a number of years. It is wonderful. We love this church. We love you. You're a great encouragement to us. We love this work. And to think of this Jonah-esque type call makes me incredibly uncomfortable, and I hope that the Lord doesn't have that for us because it's really not a nice thought. But God is about to interrupt Jonah's life. He is about to interrupt this nice life, this comfortable life that he has built for himself in Gath Hefer by calling him to Nineveh. God's calling him to leave the people that he loves, to move to a new location and venture out into a totally uncertain future. The assignment is to go and serve people of another race who are regarded as your enemy. And in doing that, you're to go there and go and see them and call judgment upon them. 
Your new calling is to pronounce judgment on God's enemies. It's a very different outlook on the prophecies that he's given so far. Nothing in this new call is attractive to you. It all seems like a totally overwhelming loss. Everything you know, everything you love is about to change. So the word of God comes to the successful prophet settled in ministry. And when it did, the comfort, the rhythm, the routine that he knew that his life was built upon ground to a halt. And he's called from comfort and he's called to discomfort. We'll touch for a moment on the Assyrians. Nineveh sits uh, up the north east of, of what was um, uh, Assyria, uh, up on the border with Persia. And the Assyrians were an evil people. I was reading about them this week, and I'm not going to share with you the things that I read because it is horrendous. Um, and despite the relative security in Israel, there was always this shadowing threat posed by the Assyrians. There was always this threat of what they could do. They were known for their brutality. They had perfected the arts of torture. And it was enough for us to know that the Assyrians were the terror of Jonah's time. It was a lavish yet violent place. It, the prophet Nahum describes the city of Nineveh, Nahum 3 uh, verse 1, the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And he calls this comfortable Jonah to go into the middle of that and call it out. The more I read this, the more I sympathize with this man Jonah. This is a place that is far more likely to be on open doors watch list of the most persecuted place for a Christian to be rather than in your top 10 holiday destinations. So putting yourself in his shoes, how would you feel if God called you to serve him in a land that is known for terror and torture? Let's get the maps out for a little second. Hopefully you can see my little green dot up the top by Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire on the border with Persia, modern-day Mosul, uh, in Iraq, up the top there. Gath-Hefar, which is home country, is way down here, down in Galilee, almost. Down here is home. And it was a 550-mile trip. He would be able to jump on some of the trade routes at some point to get up there, but that's the sort of journey that he was embarking on. And as I look at this and I ponder this, the question for us at the beginning of this book is, are we prepared to leave our comfort zones for the Lord? Are we prepared to serve him and to share him in a way that might make us radically uncomfortable? Why? Because God has a way of disturbing our dreams on our man-made plans. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Because we plan, don't we? We plan our families, our finances, our ministries, our futures. We plan everything down to a T. And lots of that's good. It's good for us to be prepared. It's good for us to think ahead. It's good for us to be um, and do well with, with what we have and everything else. But often we make such rock-solid form plans that there's very little movement for the Lord in them. And then the Lord breaks into that plan and suddenly life is set on a very different course. A child is born, a loved one dies, an accident happens, an illness is diagnosed, disaster hits, the stock market crashes, you lose your job, a child rebels. Whatever it might be, your life is torn apart 
But when God interrupts our lives, he is calling us to follow him in a new way. By breaking that settled pattern of comfort, he's moving us to this place where we might afresh discover his grace for us. The bottom line of this, embracing God's call on our lives is not easy. It was not easy for Jonah. But when we embark on this pursuit of a God-centered, gospel-focused life, our self-centeredness is exposed. God's word came to Jonah with such force and such directness that there was no doubt in his mind that God was speaking to him. There was no doubt that God was sending him to Nineveh. Being a prophet meant that he received direct revelation from God. The Lord spoke to him as a man would speak to his friends. But it's different for us because God speaks to us through the scriptures. And since the Bible doesn't contain individual instructions for us of what we should do, where we should go, God's interruptions often come to us in secondary means. So what then do we see in Jonah's response? Uh, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You see, I've always assumed that Jonah ran away because he was so scared of what stood in front of him. I was sure that he was so scared of the evil and everything that was in front of him that that was the reason why he fled and didn't go to Nineveh. But the more I've looked at this, I'm more convinced that it was what he had to leave behind that was one of the biggest factors in his fleeing. I think when we have interruptions in our lives, often what we find is that our comfort is more important than our obedience. Often our obedience is more conditional than we think it is, and that's how it was with Jonah. Before this, before this call, I reckon you could have asked him anything and he would have given you the right answer. He would have said, yes, of course I'll follow the call of the Lord wherever it might go, but of course the call of the Lord comes and that veil of selfishness is exposed. So saddened then by what he was being asked to leave, by what was ahead, he decided to call time. He decided that this was no more for him. So he went west to the harbor and found a ship. Instead of going northeast, he goes west. Jonah takes off for the port in Joppa, that's Tel Aviv today a 50-mile journey. And I thought of this as well. He had a 50-mile journey. Why? As soon as he started walking west, did the Lord not just turn him around and say, "Mm -mm, wrong way? Why did we need the fish and everything else that was involved in this story? Why didn't he just say, disobedience, turn around, go this way? Why didn't he save the sailors the trouble? It's because God lets us make our own choices. Reminded of those words in Joshua 24, choose this day whom you will serve. Think of the Israelites' journey to the promised land. It happened, they got there, but the journey was nowhere near as conventional and straightforward as it should have been had they been obedient. But Jonah here very clearly makes his decision, I want to serve me and I don't want to serve God. He had no idea how self-absorbed he was 
until the rubber hit the road, until his life was disturbed. Jesus reminds us, doesn't he, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think that is as much of, if not more, of a serious call of God upon our lives than this call that Jonah receives of Nineveh. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah runs away from God. No doubt, well versed in the scriptures, he knew those famous words, of course, of Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah knew that he could never escape the presence of the Lord. But he did feel he could avoid God's call. And I think this picture is really, really helpful. Tarshish was the most western point of the known world. You go past that, you're going to like America. But this is the picture of where the call was and where he was going. Jonah runs away and the fact that Tarshish is so far away Paints a, paints a picture of just how far he was going to go to escape the call of God on his life. Why Tarshish? Why not just stay at home? He had this wonderful life in Gath Hefer. Why leave? Well, of course, being a prophet meant the Lord spoke directly to him. And when Jonah refused that call, he knew that God would no longer speak to him in that way. He knew that the Lord would not give him that prophetic revelation as he sat there comfortably ignoring the call of God. Without that revelation, his ministry as a prophet was over and eventually people would clue into the fact that something isn't right and that something's different. Do you know, there's maybe something of Jonah's story that does feel distant or feel unapplicable to, to our lives. But I think when our horizons look bleak like they did for Jonah, whether that be in the workplace, at home, in the service of the Lord, looking for a new place to be might seem like an attractive option. You feel no sense of appreciation. Your hard work brings in little reward. There's just nothing, just nothing here. Then I think that ship to Tarshish looks ever more attractive. But of course, that ship is heading for the storm He went down to Joppa, found the ship, going to Tarshish. It all seems to be falling into place for Jonah. He makes this 50-mile trip to Joppa, and lo and behold, what happens? There's a ship waiting there. How wonderful is that? That must be confirmation for him that because the ship is there, this is the right thing to do. Everything's now just fallen into place. This is everything he needed. Surely if it was right to go to Tarshish, the boat, wait, the boat waiting there would confirm that. But of course, temptation involves two things. It involves the inclination of our heart and it involves opportunity. It involves those two things. At times there is opportunity but no inclination. At times there is an inclination within us but no opportunity. But when the, the two come together, temptation is at the height of its power. 
And with Jonah, the inclination of his heart to run from God went looking for the opportunity, and it found the opportunity in this ship. We're reminded that just because there's an opportunity doesn't make it right. Often we look at coincidence and think, this must be of God because it's just fallen into place. There will always, friends, be a ship in the harbor ready to take us in the wrong direction. We must not confuse opportunity with the will of God. And here is Jonah awaiting about to board this ship. I want to bring us in then in a, in a gospel parallel. And I don't, I, I think I'm not trying to force anything here. I think as Craig read for us in Matthew 12, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The link is made for us between Jonah and Jesus. So I'm not adding anything here by trying to do a contrast between the two of them. But when God calls us to something new, he's always up to something good, however difficult that might be for us to see. Because ultimately it is one of joy and it is one it is one of grace and, and ultimately for our joy. You see, if God had not interrupted Jonah's life, the end of his call would have been that one verse in 2 Kings 14.25. That would have been it. But God had a far greater purpose for Jonah that he would never have seen and realized from his comfort. And despite his faithless response, God's grace prevailed. I reckon this was a pretty traumatic time for Jonah, leaving the life that he loved, the terror of what he was to go towards. And I'm led then to this contrast, that Jonah was in a good place, doing good work, enjoying a good life when, he, when it was interrupted and he ran. Jonah, I want to take you to another place. I've got a different work for you. I've got a purpose for you here. There are people facing imminent judgment. You need to take it to them. And he says, no, to quote Tim Keller. Jonah concluded that because he couldn't see any good reasons for God's command, there couldn't be any. Surely, God, if I can't see a purpose, I think Jonah was equating himself with God, failing to understand that his plans and his purposes are so much bigger. If I can't see the good, then there is none. What a narrow-minded Jonah we find. And then we discover Jesus, the Jesus in heaven, ruling the universe by the word of his power, adored by the angels, in the best place, doing the best work, enjoying the best of everything. And then the Father says, go. Go to a world and be utterly rejected. Live a life that will lead to torture, to crucifixion, to death. Do the work of the atoning sacrifice for the people that I love who are facing eternal judgment. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gladly comes. It's quite some contrast, doesn't it? Jonah was not prepared to go for the people under judgment. Jesus was. Jesus willingly left the perfect place, enjoying perfect peace with the Father for our sake. Do you know, the more I think about it and the more I read in Jonah can't help but pray, Lord, make me less like Jonah. Make me more like Jesus. Lord, take away that veil of selfishness, that self-centeredness that so exists. Might I, Lord, be open to your call 
in my life, whatever that looks like, whatever circumstances, the, the likelihood is it will not be a call for any of us like that of Jonah. It may not involve the changing of a location. But what is it that the Lord might have in store for us? Might we then, as we embark on this journey together, pray that the Lord would help us to give our comforts and our hopes and our dreams and everything else to the Lord so that we might respond to him with faith and obedience. We called this series, When God Says Go and I Say No, but might our reality be when God says go, might I do so? How then do we cultivate a love for the Lord that will be strong enough to overcome our, our, our natural inclinations, deep enough in us to motivate a life of sacrifice and service for the Lord? Well, that kind of love is fueled by what Jonah ultimately discovered, the compelling vision of the weight and the wonder of God's grace. We find it wonderfully summed up for us in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce godliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Is that not a compelling vision of the weight and the wonder of the grace of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that through the, through the joys and the right actions and the rebellion of people we meet throughout the Bible, there are things for us to learn. There are things that you want us to see. There are things that are for our good. And Lord, as we consider our own comfort, the things that we know and love, might we hold them looser and looser, might we commit them more and more into your hands and might we be open, Lord, to what you might be saying to us, of who you might have us speak to, of where you might have us go, of what true obedience looks like before you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to do this, to gaze into your word and to see more of who you are and we thank you that the grace of God indeed has appeared in the Lord Jesus. That you have brought salvation to your people and that, Lord, there is a greater hope for us because of all that he has done. Bless us, we pray. Amen.